All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, saw Roger Wisdom in the hall yesterday, and he said, well, when the cats are away, the mice are at play. And I said, I don't know, or we mice become cats. So I'm the Todd cat this morning. Um, I want to point out real quick, there's an excerpt in your bulletin that Todd has written uh, concerning family ministry, and, and, and he challenged you to this opportunity of faithfulness to come and be aligned with our church uh, at the family ministry conference. Uh, you know, he gave a, a very challenging message last week, and, and one of my friends said, that was a great call. What's the play, coach? Which, which is a great, great question to ask. Uh, and I want to encourage you, come to this conference and see what the play is. Uh, Christ, our head, is setting out that strategy. But through his spirit and our elders, he is leading us to the next play for this church. So I encourage you to be there uh, and consider it like a huddle for our team that we can go and carry out the mission of Christ together. Um, well, we've been learning, well, I'm, they've given me the invisible uh, slide changer, just so you know, again. And so when you see me doing this, you'll know that's what that is. It's not like some kind of rhetorical device to make you jump in your seat or anything like that. Don't be alarmed. Um, well, we've been learning about 1 Corinthians, and uh, as we continue this series on the wisdom of God that's kind of come out of Proverbs, and now we're looking at a wisdom that's not of this world. Uh, if you'll recall, Corinth is a lot like New York City, very prominent, a cosmopolitan city with a lot of wealth and a lot of very influential people. It was also a port city where many different people and ideas from all over the world came through, and so there are a whole lot of perspectives and personalities that gave sway a lot of different fads of the culture. You know, it was the new thing that Oprah might have said that week uh, that would rifle through their communities. Um, and also a place of wisdom where people would align themselves with a particular wisdom of the day that would distinguish themselves and elevate themselves over and above other people. So you gotta understand the role that that's functioning within that culture. If you remember this, this the Corinthians had what Todd called eye disease. And eye disease is where personal influence and prominence took precedence over and above all, thing, all other things, including other people. So we come to find that the church has been splintered with divisions, which is actually an allusion to crop furrows, uh, which we see all the time. So I found since I discovered that this, the, the word that he's using there for divisions was an allusion to this. Every time I drive by a field, which is most all the time living out here in Lubbock, I'm like, don't be divided. Okay, all right, don't be divided. So I thought maybe it'd be a good one for you. Maybe you'll, you'll remember. Um, but instead he calls them to have no divisions, but to be made complete, which is a word that also gives an allusion to the concept of mending nets. It's not the concept of a completed net, but of the work of continually mending nets as a fisherman would have to do. So they need to not be divided as the furrows of a field, but they need to be mended together in unity like a net. Just want to make sure I'm on. Yes. All right. Well, Corinth's values and perspectives were driving the culture's character rather than the values and perspectives of Christ. And that was the real issue. The wisdom of the world had come to rule rather than the wisdom who is Christ. And it's these two wisdoms that we're going to be speaking about this morning. Uh, if we remember our context, 
the key issue is disunity that's been brought about through cultural values of social superiority. So we have two groups, the haves, the have-nots. And those are the only two groups there are. There's no middle ground. Either you're a have or you're a have-not. So as we get ready to look into this next passage, let's pray with me right quick, if you would. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, the word of the cross. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, through whom, by whom, in whom we have life. For where else could we go but you, Lord, for you're the only one with the words of life. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning, that it might be life for us in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever heard this scripture? Money is the root of all evil. There's a very, if you didn't catch it, a very subtle sleight of hand or tongue, as it were, that's going on there. Um, money's really not the root of any evil. Uh, it's a form of currency, a tool of trade. It's a piece of paper, a note. There's nothing evil in and of that. Um, it can be used for various things. It would be like saying guns kill people. Well, not really. I've never seen one get up off a table and go and, and exact any kind of death to anybody whatsoever. And it's interesting because the verse doesn't really go, money is the root of all evil. Here's what the verse goes. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, it says this. Those who want to get rich people fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, it is man, man's heart that's evil and his intentions in pursuing money, in gaining money, in thinking he's going to gain happiness and the things that he desires in life from that. Well, oftentimes we'll do this. We'll point to something outside of ourselves and say, there it is. That's what's evil, because the other option is a little harder. We have to look within our own hearts and see that oftentimes there's evil and wicked intent dwelling there. And uh, that's what Paul is really challenging us to do here in 1 Corinthians. Okay, He's not trying to go, see, rhetoric, it's evil, it's bad. Wisdom, that's bad stuff, you need to stay away from that wisdom. That's not what Paul is doing. Instead, in fact, Paul is one of the most reasonably logical arguers you'll find in Scripture. So the idea that he, he, he sees logic as something outside that's not good is not right at all. In fact, he also used many devices of rhetoric within all of his writing. He's not rejecting either of those as evil. What he's rejecting instead is the cultural value behind them. So, for example, with rhetoric, the cultural value is this. If I can sway someone, if I can convince someone, if I can win someone with my words, regardless of the content of what I'm saying, regardless of the truth, if I can move them and influence them, I've gained power. Do you get that? So rhetorical skill was valued over and above the content or the truth of whatever is being said. That's what Paul's rejecting. So 
Uh, there's some modern day examples that I'll bring to mind for you. Good. I was waiting for someone to laugh when they saw Billy Mays there. Or that strange guy whose name I don't know from Sham Wow. Um, Paul's use of rhetoric is very similar to a modern day cell. I used to be in sales and I used to lead sales teams. And I'll tell you how you teach someone to sell. You teach them to list benefits until they say yes. That's how you sell. Keep listing benefits. The salesman just laughs. He's like, yep, that's right. <laughs> you keep listing benefits until you get to yes. That's how you get to yes. Right, Kirby? It is. I know it is. And there's nothing wrong with that, too. Don't hear me demonizing that, but here's the deal. If that is what we're doing with the gospel, Paul's saying you missed it. If we're using rhetorical skill to move and sway people divorced from the content of the gospel, you missed it. Another contemporary example would be uh, a modern-day litigator, which that's the cartoon character, if you didn't catch that. Uh, I know you can think of the, the lawyers in our, in our midst, and they look somewhat like that sometimes. <laughs> I'm kidding. But here's the thing. The value for a litigator is to what? Is it, is it the truth? Is that what, what matters? John Shanklin's smiling. It's to win, am I right? Yes. It's to win through questioning, through swaying a jury, to win on behalf of your client, who, by the way, has paid you to win. Okay? Those capture the concept of the rhetoric that Paul is rejecting outright when it comes to the gospel. And so... What we can do if we're not careful is this. We can take the benefits, and typically those benefits we tailor to cultural values we hold, and we can attach the gospel to it. Listen to these few and see if you catch my drift. God has a wonderful plan for your life to those who are searching for purpose. I can do, you can do all things through Christ for those who might want to win a football game. You can have peace and forgiveness for those who are conscience-stricken and in a bad place in life. Well, how about this? If you seek God, all things will be added unto you for those who are ambitious and want to accomplish great things. Well, how about this? If you'll seek Christ, it'll make everything better. For those who are not very satisfied with their lives and want a little bit something more, it's interesting because this is the way many Christian movies portray the gospel, right? Someone went through a hard crisis and believed Jesus, and in the end, everything got better. Life got easier. Everything kind of followed together. Do you hear the sell? You hear it, don't you? What are you selling? I don't know. What are you looking for? I can package this any way I need to to persuade you to make a decision for Christ. So you can be a believer. You know, if, if I've sold you, all you got to do is pray and be baptized, all right? And then you can continue to pursue those things that Jesus is now going to give you that you were pursuing before. It might be dressed up and look a little nobler, but you can keep pursuing those things. It's good. Here's the problem. They never became disciples or followers of the cross of Christ. 
You know why? That's not the bill of goods they got sold. They got sold benefits leading to a yes. And then we all celebrate. He said yes. Woo. You know what they were sold? A bunch of rituals. And Jesus is the genie in the bottle. That if I'll do all these rituals of praying a prayer, getting baptized, and come to church, rub that bottle just right, he'll come up and give me everything I want. Does that sound somewhat like a gospel you might have heard these days? Not necessarily from this pulpit, but in our culture at large. Well, it's an important backdrop to Paul's next argument, which is the heart of the issue. There is a wisdom of the world, and there's a word of the cross. And those two never come together. They're far polar extremes from one another. So now just as with the rhetoric and what was behind that rhetoric, right? Paul is now going to look at wisdom. He's not rejecting wisdom. He's saying the cultural values you attach to wisdom is far removed from the word of the cross. They have nothing to do with one another. Because attached to rhetoric this idea of wisdom is where, and its cultural value is where this was coming from. I'm of Paul, right? Oh, well, I'm of Apollos and all of that wisdom. You know, well, well, I'm of Cephas, you know, he was the head of the church. You know, well, I'm of Christ, you know, even higher, you know, just kind of keep trumping each other until we can determine who's on top of this big pyramid. Well, Paul's argument about the word of the cross undermines all of these values outright. Let's read 1 Corinthians 118. I'll give you a second to open up there if you would like to. Now listen. The punch comes in the first verse, so I want you to be ready. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Wow! Knockout punch. First thing, did you feel the sting? I bet you didn't. Because he's saying things here that doesn't coincide with our experience of reality in a 21st century world. But I'll tell you this, in a first century world, that one stung. You just hit the mat. You just fell out of your seats. Do what? See, the death of Jesus for Paul is a foundational symbol of what determined Paul's vision of the Christian life. And you're going to get the knockout punch. Don't worry. If you're going, you're leaving me hanging here. It's coming. All right? Get ready. Make a face place ready right there on your face for that sting because it will come. You see, Greco-Roman symbols competed with the cross as a framework for interpreting life. And so the cross clashed starkly with religious symbols and they had many symbols such as uh, wheat, which you can see on this ring, which is a, a Roman uh, centurion ring. Oh no, sorry. Let's go one more there. There we go. Uh, so you can see that ring, a, a, a Roman centurion ring, and it's got wheat on it, uh, which is a symbol of life or power. It's much like currency in those times. Uh, and uh, fruit, you know, with lots of, um, of 
possessions, of prominence, of uh, having much. And I didn't put this up there for your benefit. Reproductive organs were also very popular as images uh, symbolizing fertility. And you're welcome for that, by the way. Um, well, what Paul wants to do is replace these ideas, these values, with the ideas and values of the cross. And they're not the same at all. So when Paul proclaimed the crucified Christ... And that one's a little disturbing. Everyone knew this Jesus suffered a cruel and shameful death. Reserved only for hardened criminals, for really bad slaves and rebels against the Roman state. They were the lowest of society. I like that image because it's fleshy and it kind of imports the, uh, the gravity of that to those who this is how they would have seen that image. See, Jesus' story revealed that he was rejected by those he came to save. He was deserted by his own disciples. He was strung up by the power and authority of Rome. And he was powerless to save himself. It flew in the face of every cultural value they held. See, the way of the Corinthian world was to gain acceptance or to be embraced by many, to retain power and influence for yourself and live long and prosper. This was the opposite of Jesus' testimony. Does that look like any of those values whatsoever? Not even close. Cicero, and you'll understand, he comes from this Roman culture. When speaking of the cross, says this, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. You see why, don't you? You see, the cross was not yet the stuff of sentimentalized hymns or stained glass windows, bumper stickers, popular clothing, jewelry, or pleasant decor. It hadn't gained the place of that yet. And I'm going to try, if I can, through images to contextualize the image of the cross for the 21st century. Here's some more modern images of death. Some more disturbing than other. Can you imagine wearing this around your neck or on the back windshield of your car? See, the cross is a symbol of death, and there's really nothing pleasant about it. But it's not just a symbol of death. It's a symbol of shame that opposes all the values of this culture. So... Instead of life, power, honor, and prosperity, the life was a symbol of death, weakness, shame, and reproach. Do you see the polar opposites of these wisdoms? They don't ever come together. I'm going to give another slide of some symbols of success. When I did a Google search on images for success, these symbols came up. And it's interesting because you can see these words oftentimes reflected in, in the images up there. And the idea is this, personal achievement, being number one. Are you following? You'll find that they're not much different from Corinth's. Gaining much possessions, gaining life, you know, accomplishing much, having money, approval, possessions, accomplishments. These are the symbols of success for our world, the symbols of success for their world as well. So we're not so far removed. 
Here's some modern day symbols that will oppose the values both of our culture and of theirs. And the cross would be associated with these symbols, these symbols as well. I want you to get the shame of the cross because that's something that's hard for us to conceive of. So I want you to get a sense of what the cross means because it's not just an image of death. It's an image of shame. It's something that counters all the values that that culture would hold, just as these would counter all the values our culture holds. See, to proclaim a crucified Jew from some outer province of Rome as, you ready? A divine being sent on earth, God's own son, Lord of all and the coming judge of the world, would have been thought by any educated man of that day to be utter madness. And so um, I'm going to give you a little story. This is not the gospel, mind you. I'm going to give you a story that would be very similar to that story to their ears as this one might be to yours. And you tell me how you would respond. You ready? So there was this homeless islander from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, Brandon Boyce probably knew him. And, and this islander claimed he was the king of the original islanders, according to their religion. But he was rejected by his fellow islanders. His followers even left him. And he was tried and found guilty in American court of law and lethally injected unto death. That guy was God and Lord of all heaven and earth. Sound pretty like that follows to you? Why? What proof do I have? Oh, well, there was a prostitute and some original island fishermen who followed him, and they claimed he was resurrected, you see. Uh, that was God's good and perfect plan of salvation for all the world. That makes sense, right? And so in light of his true revealed identity, which you've now heard from the testimony of others, uh, a few of the islanders and also some mainland Americans who by the way, have lost life and suffered ridicule. Uh, because of their testimony that this is true, uh, you also should abandon all your pursuits for wealth, security, comfort, and happiness and follow that islander's way. What would you say if I told you that gospel? You'd say, he's a madman. He's crazy. What's he talking about? I hope you heard the parallels there, though, because that's the gospel of the cross of Christ. And that's how they would have heard it in that time. Can you imagine being someone who had to go and spread that message everywhere? You see... Christianity is a message that appears to be disastrous defeat. And the unspeakable stigma of the cross exposes the preacher of this message to utter mockery. What a joke. What a fool to, to believe in something like that. But Paul didn't refer to Jesus' death with embarrassment, nor did he skip over the embarrassing details of it. But instead, it was the center of the message that he preached. Do you get that? It was the center. Not a list of benefits that they'll get if they'll profess to a yes, but the shameful, 
repulsive, value-opposing cross of Christ. That was the content of his message. Because you see, the resurrection disclosed that Christ's suffering and death was God's strategy in the world. Because it's not just the image of cross, it's the way of the cross that Paul is trying to illumine to these Corinthians who are raising themselves up over and above others to gain prominence against and to, at the expense of all others. But I want you to make sure you heard that. The word of the cross is God's strategy in the world. It wasn't a one-time strategy with Jesus. Do you get that? And that's what Paul's pointing out. It wasn't good thing the cross happened back then so we can pursue our lives now. And we have security all wrapped up in the bag for us. Sweet. That wasn't really the message. And they knew it. This is God's strategy for the members of the body of Christ as well. The word of the cross. See, a first century person wouldn't have failed to understand that. Uh, they understood that a profession of faith in a God was inseparable to the emulation of that God. That's why they all sought to follow the God on top, right? So they could emulate that prominence in the community over and above everything else. And so to say that the one who's on top was at the, with the word of the cross, that makes no sense. That's the path to follow. Who would want to be associated with that? Not very appealing, I'll tell you that. Not a whole lot of selling points there, other than a resurrection that you'll get after you die. And really, there's more, but on the outside, that's what it looks like. Well, this was the aspect of the word of the cross the Corinthians were missing. You see, they were following the way of Corinth, not the way of Christ, not the way of the cross. Paul understood this concept and often argues that the followers of Jesus must also be ones who suffer with Jesus. Let me read some scriptures in case you think I might make this up. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says this, and you can just listen. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God in Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed, so it sounds good so far, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Hmm. So believe in the word of the cross did not mean believe in your life will go better on this earth. Did you hear that in that message of the word of the cross? It wasn't there. But it means is this, believe in the word of the cross means believe unto the suffering with Christ and you too will be resurrected in glory with Christ. Follow the path of Christ and you will end up where Christ is with him. That's the message of the cross. How about Philippians 3, 7 through 11? But whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as loss, which by the way was accomplishment, achievement, possessions, all the things this world says you should go and pursue, those are the things Paul's saying that's all lost to me. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Don't miss the word of the cross there because Paul never misses it. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you see the path? The path is through the cross. See, faith does not separate forgiveness of the cross from the way of the cross. Faith doesn't separate those things. Instead, what it does is say this. The reward of the cross is that I can know Christ. Not the reward of the cross is my comfort and convenience in this life, but the reward of the cross is that I might know Christ, both in his sufferings, in his death, and one day in his resurrection too. Though I live a little bit in his resurrection now because he's given me the deposit of his spirit. But still, in his suffering, in the word of the cross, that's what I've been called to, that I could know Christ in that. Not convenience, not comfort, not all my dreams and hopes and desires being accomplished in this life. As parents, I'm going to give some examples. If we're not careful, we'll kind of warp the gospel. And we'll try to move our kids to a professed belief so we can baptize them and we can secure eternity on their behalf. And this is important to do, you know. And for us, I know because I've got three kids, um, I want the peace of that in my life. I want the peace to go, that's taken care of. But we have to take care because here's the thing, in desiring that, we can actually deceive them and sell them a false bill of goods. Here's all the benefits. Just say yes, let me teach you how to make a profession and we'll baptize you and everything will be good. There's a modern crisis, they call it a modern crisis, of children who were raised in the church and they're all leaving the church. And they're saying, well, our programming must be wrong. Something we're doing must be wrong because they're leaving the church, you know. Let's get better music in there. Let's get some more contemporary fill-in-the-blank. I'm going to throw out there this. They might have believed a false gospel. They might have been sold a bill of goods that were benefits and a bill of goods that were emptied of the word of the cross. Because you see, if they think the gospel acquires all their desires, once they become an adult, they're going to realize real quick, no, it doesn't. And, and sometimes we're arguing, no, it really does. Just, just hang in there. No, it really doesn't. The word of the cross is not a better path to choose. Not if this world is all you're looking at. Not a better path at all. That's Paul's point. That's the bill of goods he's selling. The word of the cross. See, what we've done is we've removed the foolishness of the word of the cross. And we've imported the values and the priorities of our culture and we've colored the word of the cross with that and said, see, you can have all these things through Christ instead of the foolishness of the cross that says, give your life, give all your ambitions, give everything you have to Christ because he's worthy of them. Take up your cross, make no more appeal for yourself and follow him unto death and then unto resurrection.
And so we have a different gospel. When we get older, we put it a little bit different. Believe so your afterlife is secure. Then you can pursue your desires in this life and have divine blessing and the banner of Christ can wave over you. Well, it misses the point. And the Corinthians would have put it this way. Believe and align yourself with these other groups so that you can gain great prominence within the community and you'll have great life. You hear the gospel? It's been very marred. So here's the word of the cross. I'm going to try to sell the word of the cross to you real quick. Believe in the crucified Christ who died and was raised again in glory. And I'm not going to go over again what all that image because I'm going to take for granted that you know that. You ready? I'm fixing to sell it. I'm going to list benefits to you. Then you too can know Christ. That's your reward. That's your reward, that you can know Christ. As you follow him by giving your life for the good of others, suffering the shame, rejection, persecution, loss of possessions, ambitions, and all that may be gained in this life, which, by the way, will be the consequence of you living your life out as a proclaimer of the foolishness of the cross, I assure you everyone will reject you as a madman. And instead of following your heart and dreams, you know, you can be anything you want, just set your mind and heart to it. Instead of following your heart and dreams, you follow Christ to the cross. Am I selling you yet? But you'll also be resurrected with him after you die or after they kill you, whichever comes first. And you'll rule with him in his eternal kingdom. Sound good? Ready to pray a prayer and get baptized into that? It'll be fun. Trust me. You'll see. This will be great. It'll be the best life you ever imagined. When Owen requested baptism, I took him through the word of the cross and what baptism means. And you know what he said finally? Dad, I believe in Jesus, but I don't think I'm ready for baptism. I know you might think, well, golly, what's wrong with you? You know what? I rejoiced because I understood this. He's getting what baptism means. He understands that that's an entry into discipleship, to being a follower of Christ. And he understands that following Christ is following him to the cross. And he says, I don't know if I'm ready for that. What it makes me realize is that he's understanding the way of the cross and is a wise builder. He's counting the costs of discipleship. Because he realizes discipleship will cost my life. Not a glossed profession. It'll cost my life. And he says, that's big. I don't know if I'm ready for that. See, I do Owen a disservice if I don't shepherd him towards counting the costs of the cross. And I might actually deceive him into thinking he's Christ's without ever having shared the word of that cross with him. Do I think he's saved? I've seen the fruits of the Spirit in his life. I have reason to think he is. But you know what? He needs to take the next step of faith, of understanding the word of the cross is what I've been called to pursue. Not all the things I want out of this life. What I need to want is to know Jesus and that and that alone.
Because that's, that, that's all that's worthy of being pursued in this life. Do you hear that gospel? That's the real one. That's the one that will make people reject you because it's craziness if you don't know Christ. That's a crazy gospel. When Luke is having a crisis of faith and he questions whether he believes, I don't show disapproval to him in his unbelief. Nor do I assure him, oh, you're saved. Don't worry about that. I don't do that either. I don't try to manipulate a renewed profession of faith so I can feel better about my son who's taken care of. You know, it's not my goal. Instead, we explore the hidden motives of his heart. Why? Why are you questioning whether you believe or want to follow? And we try to bring clarity to those things. And we talk about the challenge of the call of Christ. And we talk about what a lifestyle of repentance looks like. What a lifestyle of continually being a failure and taking it to the cross of Christ. And not changing the calling so that we don't have to do that. But living in failure and confession and pursuit of Christ. We talk about what that looks like. And we talk about how crazy it would be to live that life if the resurrection is not true, because it would be crazy. If you don't believe in the resurrection, don't pursue that life. That would be madness. The other day, he wrote this on my whiteboard, and I was so excited, because he's getting it. He wrote, it's better to be hated for what you are than to be loved for what you're not. And it goes both ways. Better to be hated as an unbeliever than to be loved as a professed believer who's not. Better to be loved as a believer. Better to be hated as a believer, rather, than to be loved as an unbeliever. Both of them apply true. And, and the value there is this. Honesty and the priority of consistency in belief, profession, and life. And I want them to connect those. I don't want them to see the forgiveness of cross as something separate from the way of the cross because they're not separate. And that's what Paul's saying. You can't separate these guys. They go together always. When Noah, he's young, and he's this thing, you know, it's weird to him sometimes. He's trying to understand it. Sometimes he'll say he believes and watch me to see how I respond. Sometimes he'll say he doesn't believe and watch me and see how he responds. Because, you see, he wants to see if I'll show him approval for one another of those. And I seek not to show him approval. I encourage him to be honest. Because I realize this. The relational power that I've been given as a father would make it very easy for me to manipulate him towards a yes. And that's the last thing I'd ever want to do. Lest he be deceived and think he's following the way of the cross. Lest I rob the message of the word of the cross from its effectiveness. Do you see how I would rob it there? I would take that out and just be glad to have a profession. I've actually heard another gospel from many great preachers. It goes like this. Even if the gospel's not true, it's the best way to live in this life. Eh. 
No, it's not. Paul understood this. You know what he said? Here's what Paul said. You tell me how much this, this coincides. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If we've traded in our lives in a hope and a resurrection that's not true, and believe me, make no mistakes, the cost is your life. If you trade that in on a resurrection that's not true, you are to be pitied. You are as despisable as the world says you are. Make no mistakes. It's not the best way to live. The way of the cross is only the best way to live if Jesus is the reigning Lord of heaven and earth and if you will follow also in his resurrection unto life eternal. That's the only world in which following Christ makes sense in this life. There's not another one. I got to share the gospel with a couple of guys. This past year, and I'm thankful I don't always get to do that. And they were both in great crisis in their life at turning points. And boy, I could have got excited and thought, I'm fixing to chalk a couple of these up as winners. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to share the word of the cross. A different practice, I'll be honest with you. Believe me, I'm not looking at you going, you, I'm kind of going, me and my guess is maybe you too. I decided I'd share the word of the cross with them. Not an easy thing to believe. And they both accused me of trying to convince them not to believe. It's so funny, which made me know I shared the right message. They're like, are you trying to convince us not to believe? I said, no, I'm not. I just want you to understand what you're believing. And they didn't make a decision at that moment, believe it or not. But you know what? Not because of my persuasive words that made them think I was trying to convince them not to. But instead, because of the power of God through his spirit, they came back and and made a profession of faith in Christ to follow the word of the cross. I didn't say Jesus is the salve that fixes all your problems and your life will be great. All you got to do is profess belief, you know, and maybe we'll dunk you too. I didn't. I sold the cross, which isn't very sellable, to be honest with you. And I trusted God would do a work in their heart. And he did. It was crazy. It was one of the most powerful things for me to experience because I realized this. No one believes that because it sounds appealing. No one. Only because God's working in their heart. And I got excited. I got to see the Spirit of God working through the foolishness of the word of the cross as it's preached. And I know what you're thinking, Jason. My goodness. You've just got through half of a verse. And I'm, I'll admit, you know, I planned on only getting through one verse, so I'll admit I've not gone as far as I intended to as well. But let me say this, and I'm going to show you, if you understand what I've taken a lot of time to explain, and I think you do, then the rest of this is going to make a whole lot of sense. Okay? So in this remaining moments that we have, Let's look at these verses really quick. I'm going to start from the top. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved. By the way, notice he's not saying to those of us who have been saved, who got that done. No, those of us who are now being saved. The word of the cross 
is the power of God. See, power for them was something they wielded when they gained influence and approval. And they looked at all the Roman gods and everything, and they looked at how it went up, and the Roman gods was on top, and all the lessers were below, right? Here's what, here's what God does with that, that model of power. And then whoever you're associated with and you're standing in society works in the pyramid as well. And this is what God did. He took the pyramid and he turned it upside down. And he said, this one who is least, he is greatest. And you who wish to follow him become least that you might be raised again to new life. He took the paradigm of power and turned it upside down and said this, those of you who would wish to be great Become the slaves of others. Those who wish to have power, you're not owed love by everyone else. If you wish to have power, become a debtor of love to everyone else. He turned the values upside down and said the way up is the way down. Die and you'll live again. That's the call. He's saying that's foolishness to a world that doesn't know Christ. There's no wisdom in this world that makes good sense of that. Not any. For since in the wisdom of... Uh, I'm sorry. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Isaiah, this is a quote from Isaiah. He prophesied. He told the leaders, the political leaders of Jerusalem, don't do what you're doing because what they were doing was trying to negotiate a alliance with Egypt so Assyria wouldn't come in and, and besiege the city. Well, guess what? When they made the alliance, Assyria was like, hey, we're alarmed by that. Let's go take them over. And God goes, yeah, that's my wisdom because you're going to be besieged and I'm going to bring you down to nothing. You know why? So in humility, you'll seek me. And by my ways that are not of this world, I will raise you up again. Every Jew got that. His ways aren't our ways. His ways are the ways of the lowly. And God, by his power, will raise them up. For, for, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Who's the guy that has the corner on wisdom today? There isn't one of them. There never has been. And all of their wisdom put together doesn't lead to the cross. Not any of it. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. There's an image that I used to take pride in as a, as a young budding theologian. And it was a mountain with people that were scientists and philosophers and physicists climbing. And when they got to the top of the mountain, the theologian was already sitting there. Well, guess what? That image is wrong. You know why? Because the philosopher, the scientist, the physicist, the theologian who takes pride in his height, they never get to the top of the mountain. Because the way to the top of the mountain is through the foolishness of the cross. There's not another way. The wisdom of the world doesn't lead to the mountaintop of resurrection. Only the way of the cross does. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block because they're looking for Christ to return and rule the world. Do you know why they want him to? Because then as Jews they can have prominence in this world. That's why they want that Christ. Come overtake Rome so we can take our high places with you. 
No, that's not the way. And so he's a stumbling block to them because he got killed by Rome. But to, and to Gentiles, foolishness. The way of the world doesn't lead to that. It's foolishness. But to those who are the called, to those who the Spirit has enlightened to your heart, a wisdom not of this world, to those people, both Jews and Greeks, because there are no racial distinctions. There are no, no distinctions at all, except those whom the Spirit has called and those whom he hasn't. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. Christ, who's at the bottom of that power pyramid. Who came and laid down all his rights as God, became a man and died a shameful death on the cross. That you may be saved for the good of others. That's the path. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Have you ever heard this? The medium is the message. Smoke signals can communicate all kinds of things. Okay? I'll tell you what it can't communicate. It can't communicate philosophy. Because as a, as a, as a medium of communication, it's not sophisticated enough to communicate theology. Well, let me tell you this. The medium of worldly wisdom is not sufficient to communicate the word of the cross. It doesn't add up. It can't communicate that. Do you know what communicates the wisdom of the word of the cross? Incarnation. i got to read one little verse, and this is the close. Paul says this in, first, in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Something's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Yes. Do you know what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? The incarnation of those afflictions through his body who follows the word of the cross. Do you get it? The medium of, the, of a life lived in the word of the cross, that is the medium that can communicate the message of the cross. Because that message is foolishness. It's a message that has to be lived out. It's a message that has to be proclaimed even though it sounds like madness. It can't be changed, and I'll tell you why. Because the power of God through his spirit is what moves anyone to believe and any other profession that was brought about through manipulation and rhetoric and promises of all that it's going to give in this life, it's a false gospel. Get rid of it. The word of the cross is the true gospel. And God's spirit will have to do that work. Go fill what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. By the power of God's spirit, go live the word of the cross unto death and unto resurrection. You're dismissed.